0: amen. This is interesting. I have no notes up here. That's okay, Debbie. I thought that might have happened. And so I could actually probably, no, I couldn't get this from memory. Unless Debbie, were you planning on preaching? I'll take a seat and you can do this if you want. They would, they would probably like that. So <laughs> that today, okay. Take a seat, if you would. Lord, thank you for this time as we open our Bibles and learn more about you and about heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boy, that's a great song, isn't it? We need to be more aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and so on. I like that song. Um, I want to begin talking about, we're going to finish up talking about the new heaven and the new earth the scriptures tell us it is going to be like. Um, and um, I hope that you are encouraged. I, I mentioned this in our Sunday school that we are to know the hope of his calling. And his calling for us really is heaven. And so we're to know that, know a little bit about heaven and what it's like and, and so on, so we can be encouraged by all of this. And so um, be encouraged this morning. I want to begin, though, talking about, and keep this idea in the back of your mind, what we're going to talk about in terms of heaven, and our life now, as opposed to what our life will be in the new heaven, new earth, it's going to be completely different, okay? Completely different, much better. And speaking of different, I want to talk to you about a young man that I had the privilege of discipling while I was in the the ministry with Campus Safe for Christ at Green State University by the name of... Andy Nist. Now, when I say that name, my wife will probably uh, uh, smile. She's already laughing because she knows that uh, every few years, I would have a, a cycle of, of new men that I would disciple. Um, that, those particular two years or three years, I had two Kevins, two Dans, and Andy. A Kevin Simpson and a Kevin Klein, uh Dan Plug and a Dan Horton, and Andy Nist. Now, of all those m- men... <clears throat> And they've all gone on, and and, and godly husbands, and and great guys, and so on, good friends of mine. Andy was just different, okay? And Erica knows what I think I'm about to share with you. Um, Andy came from, I think it was the Canton, Akron area, and his family was of, they weren't poor, they were probably middle class, upper middle class, so he came from a family of means. Um, You never would have known that by... Um, I'll just stay right here, is that all right? You never would have known that by the way that Andy lived his life. Now if, actually I have to move for this one. If you have over here someone that would be frugal or thrifty, okay? Then you have somebody right here which would be just, they're cheap. Then you have somebody on this end which would be, I guess you would call them maybe like a Scrooge. You know, Andy was about right here. Okay, he was wasn't cheap. He was beyond cheap. Okay, but he wasn't a Scrooge either. But he was, I think, somewhere about running. Now, why do I say that? What does that make Andy so different? Well, Andy would willingly dumpster dive. Now, you know what dumpster diving is, right? Actually going into and going in there into a dumpster. Now most people that go to, and you see it in movies, who is I mean, he's in the dumpster, scourging around, foraging around, all of that, okay? And we're like, why would you do that? He says, because there's good stuff here, man. Look at this. He said, look at this. And he got a little Christmas tree that was just a disgusting Christmas tree that he put in his apartment with his friends. Now, most people go there, and, and, and the movies say that people that go there are people that are homeless or that are forced to go there, but not willingly by choice when you have more than enough. Andy would, would do that. That's the first story. The second story is I remember walking out of a, a dorm room that was attached to a cafeteria. belonging to the university. I was meeting with Andy. We met for about one to two hours a week, and we would go and share our faith, and I would build into him and teach him the Word of God and so on. We were just walking out of this area, and it's outside now, and over here is the cafeteria. And we're walking, I'm talking, and all of a sudden Andy just stops Go, oh, look at this. And he goes over there, and he looks and points to the ground and looks at it. There was a Taco Bell wrapper with some partially eaten food that was there. And I was like, he looked at me and says, well, that's been out there too long. I said, Andy, were you seriously going to pick that up and maybe eat it? He says, oh, yeah, if it wasn't out there too long. I'm like, what? Why would you do that, Andy? (laughs) Now, Andy also was in a... uh, with most of those guys in an apartment complex. And as you know, most apartment complexes um, are built to make money. And so all the buildings are the same and you usually they have a number or a letter to identify the building. Sometimes the Bible study would be held at their apartment complex or their room in their apartment and at night and you, it wasn't easy to see. But I could always find this building because it had a dead pine bush on the side. Now, how did I know that that was their building? Well, because Andy was so cheap and he would impose this upon the other people they lived with, you know, they would pay for their water and everything else and so on. Like, for example, Andy wouldn't take a, a full shower. He turned the water on, get wet, turn it off, lather up, turn it on, rinse off, and turn off. Save money, right? Wasn't paying for the water. Andy took it to another level, though. They peed in a cup. So they we went to flush the toilet, and they would dump the cup out the window, and guess which was down below, right under their window? That dead pine bush. Knowing this about Andy, we decided to have some fun with him. So we had a weekly meeting. This is my last story about Andy, so you can see how different he is. We had a weekly meeting of about 200 to 300 college students in this, this uh, you know, classroom auditorium that was you know, slanted down, and there were two aisles going along the side with stairs. Then there was a down area, area, open area, where we would speak and so on, and they had a little band and so on. And we'd meet there for an hour on Thursday nights in a meeting called Real Life. And it was a typical, it was sort of like this. There were some announcements, there was a skit, there was some worship, and then there was a, a, a sermon or a little message. And so we said, let's have some fun with Andy. Let's see if he's actually willing to do this. So knowing he was cheap, some of us got together, and we got the loose change in our pockets, like a penny, pennies. And we just started tossing them down the aisle, and there's Andy sitting there, and he looks over and sees it, and he sees this penny roll by. Now, it goes all the way down to the main area, and this is during the speaker, he's speaking. Down comes this penny, and then another penny, then another penny, then some silver, a nickel, and a dime. And I'm watching Andy, and we're all watching, him, and he is like this. He looks at it, and then he's like, He's grabbing stuff because he is wanting. Then when the quarters went down there, that was it. He actually got up, went down the main stage, started gathering the stuff. While the speaker is speaking, the speaker just looks at him. That was Andy Nist. Andy was just different. Great guy, married a great girl named Sarah Tempton, the, you know godly man and so on. But I wanted to share that story with you to just drill into you the idea, different. Because that is exactly, not like that, but it's going to be different. Heaven is, the new heaven and the new earth. So get your Bibles out, turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, okay? Okay. Let's read this real quick. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He overcomes, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now last week, we discovered that our existence in the new heaven and the new earth is going to be very different from our current existence. We live that we will probably no longer live in a water-based environment because there's what? There's no longer any sea on the new earth. And so whatever we are in our glorified form, it's not going to depend upon the consumption of water. We also learn that our experience of God will be very different. It'll be far more intimate and satisfying. In our glorified form, we'll be able to see God's face-to-face and to live. And because God dwells um, among men, our access to him is is immediate. Now, let's talk about this phrase we read called, no longer. It's repeated. Look at verse 4. Pick it up there. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here it is. And there will no longer, there it is, be any death. There are no longer, second time, be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, I find this verse fascinating because I think it's hard for the Apostle John to describe what he has seen. I mean, how do you describe something that you don't understand and what you cannot conceive or perceive and have no reference point in terms of experience? But the only answer is to describe it by its difference from what we experience. And this is why John presents a series of no longers, okay, which will demonstrate for us the difference. And what we find is that the old human experience is gone forever. The first thing John says is that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, this seems to imply that there will be tears in heaven, right? Well, what's where are we now? There's a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes, right? That's at least how I interpreted it. Okay? But tears from what? Well, the record of our sins has been put on Christ so God no longer remembers our sin, right? So I don't think it's tears from our sin. How about tears of regret, maybe? From missed opportunities or a misuse of our talents that would have glorified God from our past life? Or maybe how about tears from the pain of loved ones who are not with us in heaven? See, I don't believe that this is what this verse means. I don't believe that there will be any tears in heaven. And here's why. Uh, through the prophet Isaiah, God has always promised a time when he will remove all tears from his children. In Isaiah 25:8, it says this. He will swallow up death forever. Of course, what's that referring to? At the great white throne judgment. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now the apostle John quotes this prophecy as he records his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. It says, For the lamb is at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. But at the very end of time, God fulfills his promise in Revelation 21.4. So after the great white throne judgment, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, God then apparently wipes away every tear. And as we enter the new heavens and the new earth, there are no more tears. Now, why do I say that? Well, what precedes tears? Well, there's an emotion, varying emotions, that well up within us, that lead to tears and then what? Crying, okay? What event triggers emotions that lead to tears? How about death? I mean, people shed tears over the loss of a loved one, right? But where's death at this point in time? It's no longer. It's been cast into the lake of fire. How about mourning the loss of something precious to you? I mean, people shed tears were losing fortunes, right? But mourning is where? It's no longer. I mean, there won't be anything to get depressed or distressed about in heaven. Well, how about pain? That, that precedes, right? Tears and crying. Pain is no longer. So death, mourning, and pain, so they're part of the first things that have passed away. This is why I believe there is no crying in the new heaven and new earth. And since there is no crying in heaven, I don't believe there are going to be tears in heaven. So I think that the wiping away of every tear is simply the fulfillment of a promise that takes place after the creation of the new heaven and new earth. Okay, but before we enter into it in its fullness, okay, because you're going to be overwhelmed with, in a good way, what was just mentioned, joy joy. It's possible it could be tears of joy but there'd be no reason to wipe away those tears, would it? You just want to live in that, those moments. Let me just add this. In the new heaven and the new earth, and hear me on this, there'll be nothing sad, disappointing, unfulfilling, lacking, or limiting. Did you get that? there'll be nothing to cry about. So there'll be no tears of misfortune, poverty, loneliness, lost love, sympathy, persecuted innocence, remorse, regret, repentance, neglect, yearning for what cannot be. All of those tears are gone forever. They don't exist anymore. Now, that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? But it's going to be what? Different. Totally different. Those tears that are so common today that mark our lives in many ways, in many forms, are going to be replaced with bliss and joy for eternity. Everyone will be as happy as it is conceivably possible to be in the presence of God in a perfect condition, all the time. There will always be unmitigated, unrestrained, unlimited, unhindered, unrestricted, undiminished joy. And so I ask you, does that sound good? Yes, it does. It certainly is different from our current experience. It is totally something new, and that's why we have verse 5 of chapter 21. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making what? All things new, see? And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. So the one who sits on the great white throne, the creator of the first things, the first things are what we are experiencing now. Okay? He says, I am making all things new, and we can fully trust that what this is, that this is what awaits us for John, specifically instructed, right, for these things are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true this is what awaits us so god will make everything new everything will be different including our glorified bodies we talked about it for a moment let's take a little bit more time and say how will our glorified bodies be different so far we talked about last week in our glorified bodies that they're going to be this thing independent of water there's no longer any sea it's not a water based environment anymore we believe it's going to be pure, and this is the one I need to remind you of. What does that mean, pure? It means that you're going to be fireproof. You're incombustible. Everything in this world is combustible, which is why God, who is invisible, clothes himself in light so that we can actually see him, and that light is described as what? A blazing fire. And that's why, in our current state, if we were to see his face, what would happen to us? Gone. Gone. The impurity be burned away, we would cease to exist. Okay? But in that glorified body, completely pure, we're able to see his face and be with him. Our body is heavenly. This glorified body is heavenly. It does not originate from earth. Okay? Our, the first body that you and I have comes from earth. It's like the body of Adam. The glorified body is like the body of who? Christ, which is from heaven. This is 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, the tent, our house, this is our current body, is torn down, we have a building from God, a new body, a house, watch this, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So it's a, a heavenly body that we have. It's immortal. It's imperishable. Okay? It's immortal. Let me go back to this. At his second coming, those who are alive will be changed, it says the mortal puts on what? The immortal. Okay. Our glorified bodies will also have these characteristics, and they put up here. It says so also in First Corinthians fifteen, forty two through forty four, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It is imperishable. It cannot die, it does not diminish, decay, deteriorate, or grow old. The glorified body will no longer suffer from sickness and death, nor will they ever be subject to heat and cold or hunger and thirst." It's a glorious body. It will manifest the fullness of all that God is. So his glory can shine through us. There is no sun in the new heaven and new earth. Because who is the sun? Who gives the light? God does from the throne. And guess where that light refracts off and goes through? Us. So he is glorified in all things. Okay? It's a powerful body. It's able to do things on a heavenly and spiritual plane. The likes, I believe, of which we cannot fathom. It's a spiritual body. It transcends anything that we would know as natural. In other words, it's not subject to entropy, atrophy, or decline. Listen to this. It's eternally fresh. It never runs out of energy. I look at a young family with kids under two and three years old. I get tired looking at them. Because I raised kids. I just remember being tired all the time. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine never feeling that. And kids are, they wonder, They're great. They're a blessing. Our glorified bodies will be fit for eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth, just like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, what does it mean our bodies will be like him? I think it means this. You remember the story of Jesus walking in the road to Emmaus after his uh, death and resurrection? We find these things. He's recognizable. They see him. When the veil's removed, they see him for who he is. He walked with them. He talked with them. He even ate with them. And, of course, he just vanishes and disappears at will. So the old human experience is gone. God is bringing about the end. And this is why he says in verse 6 of Revelation 21, that he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It is done. Does that sound familiar? Like the words of Jesus on the cross, what did he say? It is finished, meaning it's over. When Jesus said that on the cross, he achieved the redemptive purpose of God for his bearing of our sin. It was done. Sin had been dealt with. Here, when he says it is done, he means it is fully done. Because this is the moment when redemptive history ends. See, Paul puts it this way, this is 1 Corinthians 24-28. If you ever wondered about this verse, where it fits, it fits in right here. It says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he, meaning Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is Death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that this, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, to the Son, to Jesus Christ, then Jesus, the Son Himself, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, meaning the Father, so that God may be all in all. That incredible description is a description of the end. The very event that is signified by the term, it is done. And when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is saying this, I can say it's the end because I am in charge of the beginning and the end. I am the one who started it, and I'm the one who's going to end it. And he takes the kingdom and he gives it to who? The Father, that God is all in all. So all the changes are done. It is done, it is finished in its fullness. And the new heaven and the new earth is in place and redemptive history ends. There's no one else to be saved, to be redeemed. And the rest is simply eternal bliss and perfection. And now that we know what life will be like in the new heaven and the new earth, let's find out who will be there. Verses six and seven, Revelation 21. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The citizens of heaven are described in two easily identifiable ways: those who thirst, and those who overcome. Now, the one who thirst reminds us of Matthew five six: blessed are those who what hunger and thirst. For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we really don't know what it means to be without water, right? Especially in Washington, right? Where it seems to rain every day. But to those who live in the desert, they know of the dire need for water that comes as a result of real thirst. And I think what John is hearing our Lord say in this verse is, it's the desperately thirsty one who's not satisfied. It's the one who knows he doesn't have what he needs and craves it with every part of his being who will drink of the water of life. The spring of the water of life refers to the eternal life. And what God is saying here is, I'll give you complete eternal satisfaction if you thirst. It is obvious from Scripture, heaven is belongs to people who recognize their spiritual need and who know that their souls are parched by sin and who know that whatever they might have they don't have what they need and those who thirst for salvation out of a deep hunger who passionately seek its satisfaction are the ones who receive it and the best part of it you see there it's free there's no cost This is one mark of a heavenly citizen. The second mark belongs to those who overcome. Buckle in, because this is pretty awesome, what you get if you overcome. Because it isn't enough to know you need it. There's something else involved. You must overcome. Now, what does that mean? Well, 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says this, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So our faith in God helps us overcome the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary death on the cross for the payment of your sins and of our sins that results in a transformed life that overcomes the world. I want you to look now, just listen, at what the one who overcomes receives. In Revelation 2, 7, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, here's the first thing, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And The paradise of God, we know, is heaven. So the one who overcomes is in heaven, eating from the tree of life. Whatever that means. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So you're going to be, if you overcome, in the first resurrection. You won't experience the second death at the great white throne judgment. Revelation 2, 26-28. 20, he overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. That means that he who overcomes and overcomes is now further identified or defined by keeping his deeds to the end. Now what does that mean? That it means you continue in the work of God, the works that he has for you. He who overcomes is given authority and rule and power in the morning star. And the morning star is a reference to who? Jesus Christ. So you get authority, rule, power, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, 5. He overcomes, will thus be clothed in white garments, and will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. He overcomes, is clothed in white garments, They've been sanctified. Their names will forever be in the book of life, and they will have the honor of his or her name confessed by Jesus before the Father and the angels. (laughs) Revelation 3.12. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new, and my new name. Let me explain this to you now. He overcomes, is given a permanent place, that pillar that stays in the temple. You'll never have to leave. He's going to write his name on you. That's going to signify a personal relationship, ownership. He's going to write the name of the holy city of his God on you, signifying citizenship in the capital city of heaven. He's going to write his new name on you. Now, the name of Christ means all that he is. And we know Christ, but what we read in our current experience, but what we read will be experienced by faith because we've never seen him, right? But the moment we see him, who he is, will take on utterly new dimensions. And whatever we may have called him and understood him by that name, that will pale in the reality of what we see. That's the he overcomes, verse twenty-one, chapter three. He overcomes. I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as he also overcame and sit down with my father on his throne. You're given the honor of sitting down with Christ on his throne if you overcome. In Revelation twenty-one seven, he overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. He who overcomes is one whom God says, I will be his God. He will be my son. He is a son of God. This is one of the highest joys of every sinner, that a wicked, rebellious enemy of God could become God's beloved son. It also says these things. Notice that? He overcomes, will inherit these things. Well, what are these things? What's that referring to? What's the new creation? A new body in the new heavens, and the new earth, in the eternal state. The overcomers are the ones that will receive an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven with a perfect soul and a glorified body. All of that is the heavenly promise that belongs to the one who overcomes. So who is going to be in heaven? those people who recognize their complete moral bankruptcy before God and come to him in humility and repentance, they are crushed by their lack of satisfaction and alienation from God and thirst for the satisfying spiritual water of Christ's righteousness by faith. And he will also be in heaven, the one who overcomes by faith in Christ inherits all those things. Does that sound good? Now, who won't be there. And that's verse eight. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and adulterers and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, what do all these words mean? Well, first of all, what stands out in this list of these names is that it's identified by the character of the person. So it's pretty obvious who they are. Now here's what these words mean in the original language, okay? Cowardly means that those who don't have any endurance. In other words, when going gets tough, maybe when you're persecuted, you fold. You don't endure. You'll deny him. And in God, God's eyes, that's cowardly. There is no place to heaven for those people. Unbelieving, they're without saving faith. Uh, abominable, they're detestable, vile, wicked, evil people. Murderers, they are intentional or premeditated murderers. Okay, now the one that took me back, these next two both took me back. The immoral persons, when you think about it, the actual word there refers to a male prostitute, like a cult prostitute, which is a reference to homosexuality. Because when I think of immoral persons and all the other lists of people that don't get into the kingdom of God, it's all sorts of sexual morality from adultery to pedophilia to bestiality and fornication and all that. For some reason, this is identified. Sorcerers, you know, that's the Greek word, pharmakuta. We get the word pharmacy from, it refers to drugs. So it's a mixture of sort of like a magician or a potion who uses drugs in their witchcraft. Idolaters, demonic worship. Liars, those who practice lying. It's a sobering list, but it does provide some clarification, and I believe, and I want you to hear me on this, encouragement. Now, what do I mean by that? Nothing ever defiling will enter heaven. Think about that. Revelation 21:27, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, meaning heaven, the new heaven and new earth but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into this, in the city. A white robe is referring to what? Righteousness, purity. You've, you've, by faith, you've accepted the righteousness of Christ. Okay, You believe in him. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. None of those people will ever be in heaven. They're outside. And where are they? They're in the lake of fire and brimstone for eternity, the place prepared for them. Now, because of that, because none of that is in heaven, heaven is a place where there's no sin. There's no suffering, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no doubts, there's no fear of God's displeasure. There's no temptation by Satan, the world, or the flesh. There's no persecution, there's no guilt, no abuse, no division, no arguments, no hate, no quarrels, no disappointment, no anger, no loss of energy, no weariness, no anxiety, no Seattle Seahawks losing. How's that? That sound good? <laughs> and because we're with God, listen to this, in such an intimate fellowship, I believe that there'll be, watch this, no prayer, no fasting, no repentance, no confession of sin, no weeping, no watchfulness, no concern, no teaching. I'm out of a job, I guess. No preaching, no learning, and no evangelism. Just perfect pleasure, perfect knowledge, perfect comfort, perfect love, and perfect joy. And that's heaven, really, perfect joy. Because when you enter the kingdom, or you enter heaven, we you want to call it, you enter into the joy of the Lord, Matthew 25. So the dominant characteristic, I think, for the soul in heaven is unending joy, exhilarating happiness that knows no bounds, So that is the new heaven and the new earth. The blessed promise that comes to the thirsty, and folks, there'll be plenty to drink. The blessed promise that comes to the overcomer, you'll be a son of God. So much a son or a daughter that you will be made like his only begotten son, conformed to his glory. And so I say once again, does that sound good to you? Amen, it does. And so the application point is really rather simple this morning, okay? You need to be in. Is this you? Are you among the thirsty? Are you among the overcomers? Because really, that's all that matters. That is the hope of our calling. That is what awaits us. And that is why we are to think on the things that are above on heaven, not the things of this earth. Be preoccupied with heaven. Don't be preoccupied with the things of this earth. Amen? Let's stand with me. Let's close with this song this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've given us. And I've only really touched a fraction, I believe, of what I'm able to cover in a 35 to 40-minute sermon. But it's such a wonderful thought and, and a hope, a reality that we know will come true. And so we thank you this morning and continue to draw our thoughts upward to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.